0: Uh, Psalm 73, just reading from verse 1. We read that, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say how can God know? Does the most high have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Let's come and pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for the experience of David the psalmist, but even more for his openness and honesty and for the way that he gives us insight into how you call us as your people to live our lives in turn. Father, we ask, work in us by your spirit, open to us the truth of your word, that we may apply it and then live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we mentioned over the past two weeks, we've looked at some of the big life challenges that many people face. Depression, guilt, worry, Fear, anger. Well, tonight I want to carry this on by by looking at another big subject, the subject of doubt. And looking at this via the vehicle of one of the Bible's main passages on doubt, Psalm 73. However, I want to tell you I do approach this psalm with a a fair bit of trepidation. First, because this is a psalm that Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on. And yet here am I daring to try and deal with it in one sermon. Well, I want to say Martin Lloyd-Jones was a wonderful preacher, but his style was ultra-analytical, and that's not a style that that many preachers are capable of. A number have tried, but not that many. Or that that many congregations can actually cope with on a regular basis. And certainly if I were to try it, I know I would fail miserably, and I'd probably kill you off in the attempt, so... I'll not be doing that. But I'm sure you can understand, though, how I feel as I tonight set what's a miserable offering in the context of of what really was one of his masterpieces. And added to this, in addition to this, I know that I've preached on this psalm before. And, you know, every sermon that I preach, I usually file away for reference. But, you know, I couldn't find this sermon anywhere And for me, that points to one of two options. First, I've lost this sermon, which would be unusual, but not an impossibility for me. Or second, that this sermon was so bad (laughs) that after I preached it, I ripped it up and threw it away. I have to say, I have to be honest and say, I think that's the likeliest of the two options. But it doesn't exactly build up your confidence as you're getting ready for a second go. So I come to preach to you tonight on doubt with one or two of my own. But before I move into the psalm itself, let me share with you the story of a man who had a very fundamental doubt. And that is, he doubted that he was alive. He was convinced that he was dead. His friends tried to convince him otherwise, tried to deal with this doubt, but despite all their best efforts, he would not be convinced. So eventually they managed to to take him to a psychiatrist who also tried to persuade him that he wasn't dead. But again, this was without success. Eventually though, after a few sessions, the psychiatrist decided, there's only one way that I think I can convince him. I'll show him from my textbooks that dead men Don't bleed. So he showed him the various medical textbooks and explained it all to him. And eventually this poor man said, Yes, I see it. Yes, I I believe it. I accept it as a fact. Dead men do not bleed. Whereupon, with great presence of mind, the psychiatrist picked up a little knife he had, plunged it into the man's arm. And of course, slowly, the blood flowed and the man looked at this blood with astonishment in his face and then he turned to the psychiatrist and said "Well, what do you know, dead men do bleed after all (laughs) that's a kind of funny story in a way about a a pretty unusual uh, case of doubt but I, I have to acknowledge right now that in many instances and certainly for many Christians their doubt is far from funny. Rather, their doubt, the very fact that they doubt, is something that spiritually cripples them. As they feel that in this, by this, by their doubt, that they've shamefully and irretrievably let God down. Well, is that the case? Is that so? Well, I think we have to understand doubt a little bit better before we decide on that. So first, let's look a definition. Let's begin there with a definition of doubt. And the first thing that I have to say in order to define doubt with you is that there's a very, very real difference between doubt and unbelief. With the the essence of this difference lying in understanding the root meaning of our word doubt. Because you see, this comes from a Latin word meaning to, duo. So to believe is to be in one mind then about accepting something as true. To disbelieve though, unbelief is to be in one mind and totally convinced about rejecting it. To doubt is to waver between the two. It's to believe and, and disbelieve all at once and so then to be in two minds. The second thing I want to say here is that I think, I believe that all Christians, at least all true thinking Christians, while we are in this body of flesh, this weak and frail body, will at some times, in certain areas, different areas probably for each of us, but we will have doubts. Now, I'm sure that we would wish that it wasn't like this. That we would wish that we were perfect, perfect in faith, without doubt of any kind. But I want to say to you, listen, this side of heaven, we are not perfect. And we will at times doubt. Now, of course, if this becomes the major, the defining characteristic of our lives... If living in doubt is our ever-present reality, a fixed state of mind, then that is a problem. And this is made clear in James 1. It's a real blockage to knowing God's blessing. But a season of doubt, times of doubt in our Christian life with this being something that that we confront, that we face up to, that we deal with and battle through with the Lord. This in itself, I don't believe, is a sin. Rather, as one writer puts it, doubt is to unbelief what temptation is is to sin. A test, but not yet a surrender. In fact, I would go as far as to say that there are times... When it is, if we don't actually doubt, that we really have the problem. And that if we don't doubt ever, when we're faced by, by the tragedies of this life, when we're faced by the, the miseries and disasters, the suffering of which there is an ever-increasing abundance in this fallen sinful world, if we never doubt, then what does that say actually about us? If we never doubt, if we never ask that question, Lord, where are you in this? Why aren't you doing something here? Surely, if we don't at times ask that, that might suggest that we've perhaps got the kind of blind faith, that faith that refuses to think, that faith that refuses to grapple with life as it really is. Or perhaps and this is even worse for me, that we're so insensitive, we're so lacking in compassion that we just do not care. That as long as my world is all right, I don't care what goes on elsewhere. And in this context, I think the the comments of Alastair McGrath taken from his book Doubt, handling it honestly, are helpful. Because what he says is that there are times... Not always, it's not always the case, but that there are times when doubt is a way in which God is able to deepen our faith by showing us our lack of faith. The existence of doubt is like a signpost showing us how far we have to go before we have fully committed ourselves. Uh, you know, when you, when you really think of it, isn't the experience of Job Something of an example of this. This man of God, who for no apparent reason was again and again struck down in his life by tragedy. He lost everything. His health, his wealth, his family. And who could blame Job then for doubting? And as you read through that book of Job, then doubt he certainly did. But you see, he also dealt with his doubt properly. He didn't try to deny its existence. He brought it out into the open before God. And he confronted his doubt. And so because of that, Job's doubt became the road on which he traveled to an even greater spiritual maturity. Okay, have you you got that that little definition or maybe more accurately that, that outline, basic outline of doubt? That doubt is different from unbelief. That doubt is something that at one time or another affects all Christians. That doubt, as we work through it properly, can be the road down which we travel to spiritual maturity. Okay, hope you've got that. We'll move on then to look at the problem. That is the, the particular problem that this man here faced that led to this doubt. And as you look at it, initially at least, his problem seems to be one of the intellect. It seems to be a problem of of the mind, just that the fact that the theological theory, the things that he believed about God, didn't actually seem to work their way out in the reality of his life. And I believe that's what's inferred by verse 1, which stands as the introduction to this psalm, where it says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart because you see that would have been the standard approach the the standard outlook the life expectation of the average Jew at that time that you obeyed the law that you kept your part of the bargain with God and that then you could expect God to keep his part of the bargain you could expect him to bless you physically unreservedly but as he then goes on to say starting there in verse three with a a mixture of bitter cynicism and a kind of ugly, sour bitterness. This wasn't the way that things actually then worked their way out in his life, in real life. Rather, to the contrary, he says, it's the wicked who seems to prosper. They get away literally with murder. They're proud, violent, evil. They're ruthless and cruel. They shout their mouths off They boss people around. They oppress and intimidate. And yet nothing ever seems to happen to them. For physically, they're in excellent health. Verse 4, their bodies are healthy and strong. Emotionally, they're carefree and materially, they prosper. Verse 12, they increase in wealth. And what's even worse, perhaps, is that they're rewarded for their crimes. They're rewarded for their misdeeds and immorality. With popularity. People admire them and admire their success. They hang on to their every word. They think we should think all the, the kind of media and the celebrities we've got in this day. Verse 10, it says, therefore people turn to them and drink up waters. That is, drink up their words. That's what it means in abundance. So the question really that the psalmist is asking is, can there be a God? Can there be a loving and all-powerful and just God while in this way the wicked prosper and so many of the righteous suffer? That's his question. That's the essence of his doubt. Can there really be a God while there's such injustice in this world? Wasn't that a question? that, If we're honest, that many of us at some time have asked. Isn't that a seed of doubt that many of us at some time in our life have shared? Well, I remember years ago uh, going to a Spurgeon's pastor's conference a number of years ago and all sorts of things happened, but there was a big prayer topic at the college. And it was all about a young pastor who just left Spurgeon's a few years previously. And this guy was 35 years old. Married with four little children, he was in a church and it was being blessed, he had a great ministry, things were going really well. And one night he went away to his bed and in the morning he was dead. A healthy young man, totally out of the blue, totally unexpected. And yet at the same time, things like that happen. But in this country right now, we've got people who are making fortunes out of illegal drugs, haven't we? Living off the misery of others. And they live the high life, seemingly without a touch of remorse. Now, I know that the way things seem aren't always the whole story. But surely we can understand in this kind of context why some people struggle to come to terms with this. And then they do ask, Why, Lord? Why? Why do you let things like this happen? Why do you let this continue? Now, David Watson, a great writer in one of his books, He says that as Christians, we should never actually ask the question, why? That our question should rather be what? Our question should rather be, what, Lord, are you trying to say to me through this? What are you trying to teach me? What do you want to do in me through this experience that I'm going through? And I want to say, by and large, I do agree with that. And yet, you know, there are situations and times in life when something is so awful, when injustice seems just so obvious that then you, know, you just cannot help yourself. It would seem to be cowardice not to ask that question. That question, why, Lord? Why? But you know, you'll remember right at the outset I said that the problem here seemed to be one of the intellect. Well, I'm sure it was in part. But I believe the psalmist's problem here was also and I, I would say, much more fundamentally, actually a problem of the heart. A problem of the heart. Now, what I mean by this is, is look in this, this psalm how often the psalmist's heart is actually mentioned. Verse 3 to 13, Surely in vain, he says, have I kept my heart pure. Verse 22, 21 and 22, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you verse 26, my strength and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see what I believe that points to is that the psalmist's real problem, his underlying problem wasn't so much one of the intellect but where it was rooted was in the fact that in his heart he had begun to put himself first rather than the Lord. That in his heart, he again had become the center of his own life. And everything revolved around him. And God had been pushed out to the fringes. You know, this is something that can happen just so easily in our life. And it's just so natural for us. As sinful, fallen people. But once this happened, what then happened was that this then led, once he was at the center, this then led on to envy. Verse 3, for surely I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it was this then that triggered off his doubt. You see, the French have got a proverb, and I believe it's true, that we're all strong enough to bear the ills of others. You get it? It's only when these ills become our ills that we really begin to have problems. A quote that I, I came across during the week, maybe puts it a bit strongly, but nevertheless I think there's a truth in it. A writer, Hazlitt, he wrote with I think what's probably breathtaking, honestly, certainly was for me, this is what he said, the smallest pain in my little finger generates more concern in me than the destruction of thousands of my fellow men. That's maybe gone a little bit far, but it gets it across. That isn't it true that daily we can hear of tragedies all around, but it never really threatens our faith till it's our tragedy and we in some way are involved? We can hear of people dying day by day in hospitals and we care. But it never becomes a big spiritual problem until it's someone I love, someone I care for. But can you see the road that this man went down that led ultimately to this problem of doubt? First self began to push God back out to the fringes of his heart and life again. And suddenly, things that had always been going on, that always are going on in a fallen world, these things then began to bother him. And so he began to envy the wicked. And then doubt men and began to gnaw away at his soul. Now you might say, well, and, but only if he hadn't allowed self to get in in this way. If only he'd been different to this, if only he'd been better, if only he'd been perfect, well, then he wouldn't have doubted. But you know, in a sense, that's really irrelevant because this man was the man that he was. He wasn't perfect and neither are we, none of us. He doubted and so at some time will most of us What's important here, though, is the fact that this man, he confronted his doubt. He battled through that doubt. And so his doubt became not the end of his faith, but rather the means of a step forward in, of growth in faith. He solved the problem of his doubt. So we're going to look at how he did this. As finally, we'll look at the solution, this man's solution to his problem. So what was his solution to his doubt? you know, in a way, it's breathtakingly simple. And that is that he turned back to God. That's when it all began to fall back into place. He turned away from all this fruitless speculation, from all his envy and anger and bitterness, and he turned back to God in worship. He says, when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me, it was overwhelming him. Then he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. You see, what happened was that as he turned to God, he began again to get God's heavenly, God's eternal perspective. He began to realize that this world now, this world that had begun to seem to him so real and so important, that this, in fact, this world was the shadow. This world was insignificant, insignificant in comparison to the eternal, glorious, heavenly reality that is to come. Yes, and that there, there, good finally will be rewarded. Their evil and those who are evil will at last receive their just desires. You see, this man's problem is really similar to the problem of so many of us today, so many Christians today, and I include myself in that number. That he lived his life as if this age, this world, here and now, were most important. The things that we gather, the possessions that we have, the comfort that we live in. He lived as if there were no age, no world to come. And incidentally, that's, I think, the, one of the biggest problems of our, our faithless society today. That no so many people believe there is no God, no heaven, no final judgment. So you see, in the final analysis, then whether you do good or evil, that doesn't really matter. All that matters is not getting caught. That's the way our society lives. But what is taking God out of life produced? I'll tell you what, it's produced for us. It's produced an increasingly violent, immoral, evil world. That's what it's produced. For this man though, this man as a Jew, at this stage in their dealings with God, his misunderstanding here was slightly more, was slightly more, I think, understandable and appreciable because they did think then of God's blessing more in terms of the physical, more in terms of the here and now rather than the spiritual. This was God's way of dealing with mankind at this stage and in their immaturity. But you see, for those who are in Christ, for us here tonight who know Jesus, this just isn't so anymore. We know better. We've got God's full and final revelation. And we know that Jesus never promised to those who follow him that he was going to make them healthy, wealthy, or rich. Jesus never promised that. And those people you see on television, some of the God channels that seem to promise that and say this is God's will, it's absolute nonsense. This, to the contrary, is what Jesus said. And this verse is one example of many. Luke 9.23, this is what Jesus promises. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But rather, though, Jesus did promise, Jesus promised to bless his people primarily spiritually. He promised now to bless his people in the Spirit and by the Spirit. John 14, 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he, and he will give you another Counselor, and he will be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Now I ask you tonight, Ask this question of yourself. What's most important? That we be blessed physically? That we have health and wealth and popularity in this world, here and now? Or that we know Jesus in the Spirit with all the spiritual riches of heaven to look forward to? I don't know what your answer is. I pray that it will be the right answer. But for the psalmist here, when he really looked again upon the Lord, when he turned away from these little things and focused again on the greatness of his God, for him he found it an easy choice to make. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire but you. Nothing I desire. I ask you tonight, can we love the God who made us in Jesus any less than given our whole life? Can we be any less faithful than this man here? We've got to learn to value the things that really matter. We've got to live with our God truly as Lord in our heart. And if we do that, then the doubts and challenges, the threats that seem to overwhelm us, we'll be able to handle them all as we focus on God, as we know the way that he has blessed us and the way that he will bless us. Let's just come to God now in prayer. Father, we just want to thank you for the greatness of your love. We want to thank you for your overwhelming faithfulness. We want to thank you that, Lord, that we're here tonight and maybe some of us have got doubts. We're going through times in our life, times in our family life, times at work where there's all sorts of injustice that we can see. There's hardship. Maybe people in our families are suffering. But, Lord, we pray help us tonight to look again to you. Help us to know that what really matters is knowing you in this life and knowing that we're going to be with you forever in the life to come. Lord, be with us. Take all our doubts and fears away as we focus on you in worship. Fill us again with your grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.